Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Uh, so we have heard both sides of the argument, but that you are correct that the majority of the people who come to our public meetings are saying that they would like somebody from uh, within the city limits. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Anthony Driver, president of the Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability. What a mouthful. That is the seven-member civilian oversight panel that is now conducting a nationwide search for Chicago's next permanent police superintendent, along with working with the Chicago Police Department to evaluate the superintendent and set policy for the department. Anthony Driver, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. The Sun-Times reported on Monday that Fred Waller, who rose through the ranks of the Chicago Police Department to chief of patrol, chief of operations, number three in command, would be named this week to serve as interim police superintendent and perhaps audition for the permanent job. What do you think of that? Um, well, I, I have not been able to confirm that myself. Um, I have read about it and in, in sometimes and for, from some other outlets. So, um, you know, I, I don't have any particular opinion about it. I don't think it really affects our process. Um, I think if he's somebody that, you know, Mayor-elect Johnson trusts to get the job done in the interim, then then, then he will, you know, be a good pick and we'll, we will work with him in the interim to make sure that the police department's up and running and delivering the, the safety that our residents deserve. In 2020, Fred Waller followed First Deputy Anthony Riccio into retirement and joined Riccio as a top executive at Monterey Security. His tenure as interim superintendent, we've written, could be a trial run for the permanent job, especially if Chicago makes it through without the traditional summer surge of violent crime or a repeat of the videotape mayhem downtown that gave Chicago another black eye around the world last month. What do you think of Mayor-elect Johnson's choice? I don't I don't have enough information to honestly make a, an assessment here, like, I'm obviously, as a Chicagoan, familiar uh, with Brett Waller. Um, if he is the interim, I wish him the best. But um, as I said, as far as our process, it won't it won't affect uh, what we have going on, uh, even in the slightest. Um, I've had conversations with uh, Mayor Johnson as well as his transition team. Our our process is independent um, and is running simultaneously or concurrently while he's picking an interim superintendent. Um, and I'm honestly, our, our, our application process, the applications are firewalled off until May 7th. Um, so I don't even know if Brett Waller is applying uh, for the job, as you mentioned in the in the article, that he may be auditioning. I'm not necessarily sure that that's uh, accurate or true. Well, if this is an audition, if he is, if he is successful in this interim position, doesn't the tryout give him 
a leg up on the competition. Well, that, that I mean, we, we have to, by city ordinance, have a have three picks to the mayor by July 14th. So that would be the shortest audition in, in, in the history of auditions for a job of uh, this magnitude. So when we're making our decisions, we won't even have a, a, a large body of work to go on. And that's even assuming uh, that he applies. We Again, we have no idea whether he's actually going to apply for the job. And if he is, that, that deadline closes in five days. Okay, yeah. In the past, the police board conducted a nationwide search while the mayor of Chicago did his or her own back-channel search. The name of the mayor's favorite was somehow communicated by osmosis to the police board, which made sure that the name of the mayor's pick was among the list of three finalists. Has there been any communication like that between the commission and mayor-elect Johnson's transition team this time? Absolutely not. Not not in the slightest. I spoke to Mayor-elect Johnson and to members of his team uh, the day after the election. Um, we went through the process a little bit. Uh, we had a very cordial conversation. Um, they have not tried to influence our process. They have not tried to uh, submit names. In fact, the only the extent of the communication was Mayor Johnson saying that it's really important that Mayor, incoming Mayor Johnson, sorry, it's really important that we have a robust community engagement process. Uh, and he encouraged us to keep with the process that we're already doing. Now, the mayor-elect has expressed a very strong preference for choosing David Brown's permanent replacement from inside the department, either somebody who is there right now or a top official who left in recent years. In part, he wants to help restore police morale, reassure officers that City Hall has their backs, and stop a mass exodus of police officers that has left Chicago with roughly 1,700 fewer officers than the city had before Lightfoot took office. And yet your commission is in the process of conducting a nationwide search to find the very best candidate without regard to whether that person comes from inside or outside the department. Does the mayor's open preference for an outsider kind of undermine your search or your independence in any way? No, no, it doesn't. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the mayoral candidates that they were running uh, expressed a very uh, similar preference. But as I stated before, our commission is completely independent. Uh, our commission was created to inject the public's voice into this process. So that's who we are taking our orders from. Uh, we are having community engagement sessions. We're talking to different community members, different subject matter experts, different stakeholders. Um, and we will take a more holistic approach uh, to this process, but um, we will evaluate everybody fairly. And that's that's whether or not you apply uh, from somewhere outside of the city of Chicago or within the city of Chicago. I think that's important also. A lot of residents and people are saying they want somebody who knows the city of Chicago. Um, it's not always them saying they want somebody from within the department. Some are expressing that, but our, our goal, our job, our objective is to, view, is to evaluate everyone uh, fairly, and that's what we plan on doing. But a lot of the people who have testified at these three meetings have said they want an insider, haven't they? You are correct. And we have a number of different means that we are engaging the community. Uh, so to be honest with you, we've heard both sides. I've heard a large amount of people come to our uh, listening sessions and our town hall to say that they want somebody from the inside. They want somebody that knows intimately the city of Chicago. Um, but there's also people who say that they don't want somebody from within the city of Chicago because they've made have grown up in a corrupt policing system. Uh, so we have heard both sides of the argument, but 
that you are correct that the majority of the people who come to our public meetings are saying that they would like somebody from uh, within the city limits. And where do you come down in that argument? Uh, um, we're still having a community engagement session. So I, I personally am trying, I am trying to be as objective as possible. I think I, my fellow commissioners are as well. Uh, we haven't had our North Side meeting yet. We have a few more town halls and, a, and more subject matter experts to talk to. Um, so me personally, I'm not on any side of the spectrum yet. I'm still in the process of listening and, and taking my notes from the community and seeing what, what they're saying. And it wouldn't be fair for me to make a, a premature judgment before we've talked to everybody. Now, you've hired a search firm specializing in law enforcement that will lead the nationwide search with a very not fast lead, turnaround. Not, not lead. All that right, is, we'll help is, you. Yeah, okay. Correct. We'll help you, assist you, I should say, and uh, stand corrected on that one. But the turnaround is very fast. May 7th is the application deadline. Inter interested applicants are asked only to submit a comprehensive resume, a compelling cover letter, and five professional references. Uh, the decision to request nothing more than those three things uh, is a change from the previous searches when you had a very detailed questionnaire. Why not a detailed questionnaire this time? Because well, this is an initial phase. We are interviewing people after that and we were requesting additional information from those who are qualified to move on to the next step of the process. Um, so this is not the end of it, this is an initial screening. Um, and also just to talk a little bit about the search firm, uh, that, that search firm wasn't, it is a quick turnaround, but that search firm was not brought on to gen up applications as uh, it was kind of widely reported. We talked about having a search firm way back in September when we spoke with David Brown and he alluded to not being here for the long haul. Um, so that was already in the works. We only announced the search firm because we're committed to transparency. We want the public to be able to not only scrutinize us, but all of the people that we are bringing into the process uh, to help assist us as well. Um, so we will be requesting more information. There will be multiple rounds of interviews, um, but we wanted to make sure that we had an initial screening and that's why we're only giving folks 30 days to apply, um, but then we will be requesting more stuff. So will you have a questionnaire, a detailed one? Yes. Oh, you will. Okay. And how many questions are we talking about and what kinds of questions? Well, that's the thing. That's, that's the beauty of this process. Uh, we're still formulating that. So people, as they come to these town halls and they make their voice heard and they ask very specific and detailed questions, those are the type of questions that will end up in the questionnaire. As we talk to the faith community, labor community, uh, community organizations, activists, as we reach different constituent groups, those questions will end up in the questionnaire. Uh, so we're completely going to this with a completely open mind um, and listening to folks, and that will form the basis of the questions that we interview people on, as well as the questionnaire. And then how many people will you call back for like semi-final interviews, in-person interviews? Uh, we, we won't know that until we have the actual, um, the, the pool of applicants. As I said, I'm blind to, I know, I know how many have applied, but I do not know who has applied until May 7th. Once we see what the pool looks like, uh, we'll make a determination about how to whittle it down and then how to, you know, do second, third and, and fourth route interviews. Um, and it'll get smaller and smaller until we send Mayor Johnson three names. How many have applied so far? 13. 13 so far. Okay. And over the years, the number of applicants has diminished and shrunken with each search. Um, it seems that this is a job that is notoriously difficult to succeed in. 
Given how it went for David Brown, do you expect the number of applicants to drop yet again? Uh, I don't, but I also have I have no way of actually gauging that. Um, I do know that over the years, the number of applicants has gotten smaller, um, but this is a new process. It's the first of its kind process. Um, I know the profession of policing is changing, um, but I, I my personal expectation would be that we'll be around 20 or or more applicants, which will be right around the number of people who apply for the police superintendent in the last go round. Being a big city chief is incredibly difficult, especially now. What are you looking for? Describe your idea of the ideal candidate for this job. What qualities are most important? So I'll tell you some very broad qualities, but I want to you know, keep emphasizing that uh, my job is to take the community's voice and bring it into this process. So it's really what they're looking for. Uh, so I'll rather tell you what I've been hearing. I've been hearing that they want someone that's present, uh, someone that has ideas and, and a proven track record, someone who views the consent decree as the floor and not the ceiling, uh, somebody who has strong management skills, somebody who puts the community at the forefront, who's a collaborator. Um, rank and file officers have said multiple times they want somebody who has their back. Um, someone that we have a, a, a very unique system of government Personally, I'm looking for somebody who will work well with our commissions, someone who will work well with the newly inaugurated district councils, um, and a very uniquely qualified individual who can really bring people together and understand the historical moment that we are in as a city where we have a new mayor, have a new incoming city council, a new public safety infrastructure, a new commission, new district councils. We got the DNC coming, uh, and we have a lot of challenges, but we also have a lot of opportunities. So somebody who holistically understands that and is coming to this uh, ready to work on day one, ready to, to get the job done. That sounds like a mouthful and a tall order. How would you like the next superintendent to be different than David Brown? Um, hmm. I, mean, I think there's a number of, of ways to answer that, but I, I think uh, probably the, the most important one is, is somebody who's actually present in the community, uh, someone who is out in the community, uh, who is willing to, to talk to the small person, who's willing to bring people together, um, who, as I mentioned before, rank and file officers and brass, have, they have buy-in from rank and file and the brass, buy-in from the city council, uh, buy-in from, from different stakeholders. So that's, that's an area, somebody who's very collaborative uh, is the way that I would characterize it, what we're looking for um, that's different than Superintendent Brown. How do you think and why do you think David Brown failed? I don't know if I would say he failed. Um, you also, I won't say he, he did the, he did a great job. Um, I think he had a tall order. He took over during a pandemic, uh, in a very turbulent time in our city. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if he actually had the foundation that he needed, uh, with, with, with residents in the city of Chicago to actually be successful. Um, but I, I'll also say that, you know, I've, I've been critical before and, and the way that his administration work with our commission, the way his administration work with different community groups, that's a very top-down approach. And that is not what we need in the city of Chicago. We need somebody who's willing to work from the ground up, who's willing to collaborate and bring folks together, who don't who do, don't always believe they're the smartest person in the room. And is that how he believed? Did he act like that? I don't know how he believed, but I, I do know that um, our, our city uh, could have used a little bit more collaboration from, from our police department. And why do you think so many top brass left the department under Brown's tenure? I don't I don't know if that was all, you know, on David Brown. Again, I can't speculate. 
as to why they left, you know, may have been personal reasons. There have been different changes in the policing profession. Again, we cannot underestimate enough how much a global pandemic affected people. Um, so I don't know. I can't speculate as to why, why so many left, but it happened and, and here we are now. When uh, then police board president Lori Lightfoot was leading the search that culminated in then Mayor Rahm Emanuel rejecting all three finalists and going around the police board to choose Eddie Johnson, she told me there were fewer than 10 people in the entire country who could actually do the job of Chicago police superintendent, that it's that difficult. Lori Lightfoot. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do you go about finding that person? Um, I don't know how it was back then. I think I think there are, are, are qualified people here now. I think there's probably a, for sure more than uh, more than 10 in the country. Uh, it's probably a lot within our city, actually. Um, but I, I think we we go about it by putting the community at the front like that. That is our job. The mayor is the ultimate decision maker. The city council has the ultimate power of confirmation. Our leg of the race that we're running is to put the community's voice into the process. So we've tried a lot of different things in our city. We've tried to change, you know, uh, IPRA to COPA, which is the investigatory body. We've tried giving the police board the authority. We've tried everything but put power into the hands of residents. Um, and that's where we are now. So I think that is the way we go about it. We, we put the community at the front. Uh, and when I say community, I want to be clear. I mean everybody, because a lot of times people think that rank and file officers are not a part of the community. Um, but we have a residency requirement in the city of Chicago. So they live here and they're also a part of our community. And that's the different community groups that I've also mentioned that we're reaching out to. You put them at the forefront and I think we'll be all right. Today, you join Mayor-elect Johnson in the attending the swearing-in ceremony for 66 members of the new police district councils. These are the three member panels in each of the 22 police districts who were elected by local residents. Was that a moving experience for you? Absolutely. It's a moving experience. It's 50 years in the making. It it predates me being alive. Um, It's something that before he was a congressman, before he was an alderman, Bobby Ruff worked on uh, in the city of Chicago. Um, And I think it's the culmination of a a decades-long struggle to bring a real democratic voice to residents in the city of Chicago and how they are policed. And you said the swearing in was the culmination of the 50 year struggle. Um, you also said it marks the beginning of one of the final pieces of true community policing. What did you mean by that? I mean, I mean, residents, everyday Chicagoans, the brave 66 people or 65, I believe, who are, are inaugurated today. Um, are now the voice of their communities. They are now the vanguard of policing in the city of Chicago. They're tasked with having a hyper-local body that's in each part of the city of Chicago in every police district where every resident is no more than five or 10 minutes drive or bike ride from somebody who can represent them on public safety. Uh, Crime, public safety, whatever you want to call it, has been the biggest issue in the city of Chicago since way before I was born, probably before my parents were born. I mean, we haven't had a real voice in that process, and now we do. Now, now everyday residents do, and that—that's what I mean. They are, they are now inaugurated. They are elected officials, and and I have a lot of faith in them to help change our city. And how does their work differ from yours? They're the hyper hyper local groups, right? Yep. So we, the seven person body is is two parts of the same body. 
the seven person citywide commission that I now lead is a, a citywide commission that has, you know, the power to enact policy within the police department to hire and fire the COPE administrator to play a role in selecting a police superintendent as well as removing the police superintendent. Also setting goals and evaluating uh, the different public safety bodies. The district councils are a check on the commission and, and we kind of check and balance each other. The district councils are in charge of nominating the people who will be on the commission. District councils are in charge of having monthly meetings every month to uh, get to the root of issues in each district. Issues in the first district are going to be very different than issues in the 22nd district when it comes to public safety. The district councils are, are sort of the tip of the spear as far as getting to the bottom of, of what's ailing our city at a very uh, hyper local level. And you are a temporary commission, right? Correct. Until the district councils nominate 14 people and Mayor Johnson select seven, we are. So do you want to be permanent? Do you want to be on there? Uh, I think that's up to them. If they, should they ask me, I, my answer will be yes. Uh, if they don't, then I will continue to do this work from the outside and, and show them off from the sidelines. Now, the Tribune did a very interesting story this week about how your personal experience with having been a victim of an armed robbery shaped your view of what kind of superintendent we need, what needs to be done differently in Chicago policing. Tell us what happened, when it happened, and how that experience changed you. Yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say it necessarily shaped my view, but it did shape a part of it. Uh, on January 23rd in my personal life, uh, I work uh, for the SEIU Illinois State Council. It's election season, so I was working late. Uh, I left and came home, parked into my, you know, in the back of my, my building. And as I was going to the front to actually retrieve, retrieve sorry, uh, a package, um, some folks jumped out, some kids, as I would probably call them, uh, jumped out, robbed me. They, you know, had a rifle, had pistols, um, took my work bag, uh, my wallet, my AirPods, everything that was in my pocket, um, and then drove off, drove away. Um, so that was a very interesting moment for me because it was my it wasn't my first time having something like that happen, but it was my first time experiencing this system as both a victim and a leader at the same time, which has been a very, very unique and interesting uh interesting uh experience. So you've been robbed before? What happened to you before? Yeah, I mean I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I'm born and raised, so I've I've experienced the game and I've been Robbed, I've been shot at, I've lost a lot of friends to gun violence. Um, growing up on the South Side, I've experienced the best and the worst that our city has to offer. And that is what shapes my viewpoint. Uh, that's how I came into this work in the first place. Um, that's the that's what I the reason why I've dedicated my life to this work is, you know, I've seen a lot of my friends lose their lives to gun violence um, and, and very traumatic things on the South Side. And that has shaped my experience. And it's, it's the reason why uh, I'm doing the work that I do now. You say that there needs to be someone to handhold victims. What do you mean by that? And what happened so, to you? I guess they didn't hold your hand very well. Well, so when I say handhold, obviously I'm, I'm in a position of privilege and I want to acknowledge that, um, that I, I'm privileged enough to be able to get all of the things back that were stolen from me. Um, I'm in a position of privilege to have a, a workplace that provides mental health resources and time off and things like that. Um, but when I say handhold, uh, I'm not talking necessarily for myself. I'm talking for other people in the city of Chicago. When when you are 
robbed or you go through a traumatic event or you're shot, um, you don't, you're, you're already in a crisis state. You don't know what to do next. Um, and what I've realized through going through that experience myself is you're sort of left your own vices. You have to figure out how to get a police report. I wasn't given a police report. You have to figure out what resources are available to me. What do I do next? I don't have a driver's license. Can I, can I drive my car? Can I do, you know, a bunch of different things? And it's like, our officers were very concerned and they, they did their job, but they left. And for the next four days, I'm trying to figure out how to put the pieces of my life back together. Um, and there's, there's no mechanism for that. You know, there's nobody who's telling you, uh, this is how this works. The investigation is in this part of the process. These are your rights as a victim. Uh, when the police ask you these questions, uh, you can or you don't have to respond. There's nobody here. You're there. Um, and there, there's nobody there to say, you know, here, here's some mental health resources. Here's something. Here's a contact for somebody that can help you. Um, it sort of just happens and everybody goes on about their life. Um, but you're left with that traumatic experience. And you're left still in that crisis state. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm very blessed to to be in a position where I have access to those resources, but I, I, I'm, I'm scared for and I'm sad for uh, people who experience these types of things and, and they're left to just fend for themselves. The, the saddest part about that whole incident wasn't me being robbed. As I said before, I've gone through similar situations before. I've had guns put to my head, like, and not, not to, you know, make it about me, but the saddest part was that uh, when they robbed me, they threw purses out of their car when they sped off. And to me, each of those purses represented a victim. And I, 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 as I sit in the seat of privilege, I cringe and I think about what if they had to go to work the next day? What if they don't have access to mental health resources? What if they don't have an employer who's going to replace their stuff? You know, what happens to them? Do they just have to go through our life and figure it out and fend for themselves after going through a very traumatic event? So it, it opened my eyes to the fact that we have to do better, not only our Chicago Police Department, but our city government as a whole with the way that we treat victims of violent crime. We have to start centering their voices. So what needs to happen, do you think, for victims like yourself? Well, I have a, I have a general idea. I'm in the process of researching it, and so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I see other cities that have an office of victim advocate, um, which I think will be a great first start. Um, again, I don't know. I'm not far enough along in my research to know um, all the resources that are available in the city of Chicago, but having somebody that just calls you after an event like that, asks you, do you need help with anything? Uh, here's the list of resources for you. Um, this is how you start the process of getting a new license um, or, or any of anything like that. And here's how you can find lawyers. Here's your rights when you talk to the police. Uh, here's how you follow up. Here's how you talk to the state attorney when they call. All of those things. To have somebody that can walk over a person who's experienced a traumatic event through that process, I think would be a great help uh, to victims of violent crime in the city of Chicago. And as we know, uh, there are thousands of us thousands. It's, it's happening in our streets every day. Um, and, and while we have to do a lot to prevent it, we have to do a lot to also make sure that folks that experience it um, are having a positive experience in our city, even in the midst of a very traumatic event. And you're not just talking about counseling for the trauma of it. You're talking about the practical, what do I do now? I don't have a license. My cards were taken. What do I do? How exactly. do I... It, it's it's it. You want the practical part of it, not necessarily so the the social work. It's holistic. Part of it. It's so it's holistic. It's all of that, right? It would have uh, an amazing experience and a traumatic event to me would have looked like this happened. The police are the front end. They're they're investigating. They're doing their job. They're trying to catch whoever did this. But there's also someone that comes and says, "Here are mental health resources provided by the city." 
to you. There's someone who says, these are your rights going forward. There's someone who's saying it. And one of the hardest things for me was figuring out who do I call, right? I think I might have information on the people that robbed me. I have no idea who to call. Do I dial 911? Do I call 311? Do I just show up at a police station? What district are the officers that are investigating my case out of? What area are they out of? All of that stuff I had to research on my own. I, I was completely clueless um, as to how that part of the process works. And I don't think that should be a police officer's job. I think the police should be free to investigate crimes um, and do their job, but there should be some other form of government that's there to help people who experience these things on our streets. And you went to the ninth district and you talked to the desk sergeant and they said that you had some valuable and you said you had valuable information. They said they'd get back to you in a few days and it didn't happen. Correct. Right. And you can imagine how I felt, you know, and and I've all been able to see this from both sides. Right. But you can imagine how I felt when I feel like I have some information that can help in my case. And no one even asked my name. No one took took my car, took my number. They just say, oh, they're backed up. They'll get back to you within 72 hours. Have a nice day. Um, and that was that was itself sort of re-traumatizing because at that moment, I felt small. I felt like I didn't matter. I felt like a very traumatic thing had happened to me. And uh, it felt at that moment like my city government didn't care. But then when I spoke to the detective who's actually working on my case, uh, and I don't, you know, he worked very hard on my case, and he was telling me how many cases he has to deal with, I felt for him too. It's mm-hmm. like, I get it. You, you, you can't call me back in four days because you got a bunch of other cases that you're working on, uh, which is something that I'm also concerned about. How, how do we make sure that the workload within our department is right sized and that, you know, we have the right resources that are needed to solve these sorts of crimes? So what do you plan to do about that? Uh, I, I plan to act smartly and gather information and, and get to the root of it and, and figure out how to fix it. I think it would be uh, not smart on my, on my part. Um, to just speak solely from one experience, recognize that this could or couldn't be a systemic issue in the city, um, and that I myself don't understand holistically what happened, where the breakdown was. I do plan to figure it out. I think a lot of times folks aren't comfortable just saying, I don't know, <laughs> but that's where I'm at right now. Rather than give you you know, erroneous information, uh, I'd rather investigate it, learn as much as I can, and then come back to you with a complete answer about how we can better our city. Now, you've talked about how other experiences have shaped your view about policing. For example, your dad's inclusion in the gang database that Mayor-elect Johnson wants to eliminate. Yeah, uh, and I will tell you, that was that was a thing, too. You know, my dad didn't know he was in a gang database. My dad has never been a gang banger, ever. He's never been a member of a gang. Um in 2018 or 19, I, for Father's Day, I decided as a bonding thing, I would take him to a concealed carry class and took him to the class. He decided to turn in his application to be a concealed carry license holder. And he was denied because they stated that he was a member of the Gangster Disciples. Um, and that was the only, he had been on that list for 15, 20 years. Had no idea that he was on it. No idea why when police officers pulled him over, they were a little bit more aggressive towards him. He just assumed it was because he's a six foot two black man. Uh, with locks, but, you know, he didn't know he was being pulled over and it was coming up that he's a gangbanger simply because of the neighborhood that he lived in. So that that was also, that's one of the first things that our commission tackled. The gang database is currently not active, and, and I don't expect it to be active for as long as I'm president of this commission. So when somebody comes behind me, if they want to take another look at that, that's their prerogative. 
I, I, I can speak pretty confidently for myself, as long as I'm hearing that the commissioners that we have, that there will not be an active game database in the city of Chicago. And it, and it should be, you believe, eliminated by Mayor Johnson. I, I, I think the police department should eliminate it. And I, and I think they've taken steps uh, to mitigate a lot of the harm that was done by the gang database. Um, but I also think that, you know, they failed to say why it should exist. So right now we've introduced our first order, uh, first general order, which brings the gang database under our purview, under the commission's purview. So anything going forward will have to come before our commission. And that's why I can say as president of the commission that as long as I'm here, there won't be a gang database. And if Mayor Johnson moved to take legislative action or that regular department to completely eliminate it forever, uh, that would, I would uh, a thousand percent support that. Yeah, because of what happened to your dad or because it's not just him, it's all kinds oh, it's of other people. Correct. Ninety-two 92% of the people, according to the OIG, the Inspector General's office, uh, were black and brown. There's a 108-year-old person and like an eight-year-old person. Um, in fact, when the Chicago Police Department put new criteria on putting people into the gang database, only like 3% of the people stayed. Um, actually, don't quote me, but I, I believe the number was somewhere around 3% um, actually stayed. So that's, you got a gang database that was essentially, according to the new criteria, 90 plus percent inaccurate. And these are people who've been profiled. These are people who've been denied their Second Amendment rights. These are people who apply for city jobs and were denied employment. Um, it was a completely discriminatory and racist practice that should not exist in our city. And then no one has been able to say why this makes our city safer. I'm not a, a rational person. I don't believe our commissioners are irrational, nor the residents of the city of Chicago or the people who are fighting to abolish it. If there was some practical reason at how this made our city safer, I think we would be willing to listen to that. But nobody has been able to say this is why we need a gang database. Well, Lori Lightfoot, Lori Lightfoot argued that it was necessary for law enforcement purposes and that giving people an appeals process to get off of it and notification that they're on it would be enough. And they had a whole new procedure that they wanted to do. But you say no, that that won't yeah, cut absolutely, it. Absolutely not. Can you imagine being profiled, wrongly put on a, da a database, discriminated against, and then they tell you, you got to go prove that you're not in the game? It's like, excuse me, I never was in it in the first place. Now you want me to go prove it? And then the appeals process to me, it was, it was, it was flat out silly. Like, you want me to now take time off work where only a limited amount of hours I have to drive to one of four or five police stations. I can't go to a community center or anywhere else. Four or five police stations and headquarters and, uh, and file an appeals process and then go before the police board. And now you're taking more time out of my life and off work to prove I'm not a part of something that I never should have been on. And here's, here's the reality. Our city spends hundreds of millions of dollars on violence interruptions, on violence prevention. Even if I was on a gang, in a gang today, let's say one of those folks that our, our city spends hundreds of millions of dollars on reached me today and, and can, tomorrow and convinced me that I shouldn't be in a gang anymore. And so I was in a gang yesterday, but now I'm not. And now I'm trying to change my life around. Now I want redemption. Now I want to better my community. Now I want to go get a job, right? You're going to add to the agony and now I have to go appeal and go through an arduous process to prove that I'm no longer in a gang. If the system is working the way that it's supposed to be and we're getting people out of that type of lifestyle, there'll be no need for an appeals process because there'll be no need for a gang database in the first place. The Sun-Times also did a story last week about the political style campaigning by candidates for superintendent, including Ernest Cato, Roderick Watson, 
Rock Muhammad, you don't like that much? Um, I, I think if the community is making their voice heard, if this is a genuine thing where people are showing up and saying, I have a personal story about this person. I have a personal testimony. Uh, I have this type of data that I want to present to the commission. I want to show this, the commission how this guy helped me. I think that's all fair game that's coming from the community. What I, what I don't agree with is if, and I have no evidence of this, so I'm not making any accusations, if there are candidates who are campaigning themselves. This is not a popularity contest. Um, we will listen to residents who put their voice at the forefront, but that will not be the only uh, thing that we use to make a decision here. Uh, the public doesn't have all of the information that we will be presented with. I don't have all of the information. So we have to evaluate people in a very fair manner. We got to do our best to get Mayor Johnson a list of names that he that we want to get right the first time so he doesn't reject all three and we have to start over again. Um, so I'm, I'm all for the community's voice and I'm raising their voices, but the, the, the actually coordinated campaign is what I think has no place in this process. Would you like to see Mayor Johnson fill the 1700 police vacancies or eliminate them from the budget? I so that is a that is totally his call. Um, and I, I have absolutely no comment on that. Um, I think Mayor Johnson has to get in office, assess the situation and as a chief executive of this city, make a decision about what to do there. Should he hire back Bob Boyk, the head of constitutional policing, who was fired by David Brown for complaining about Brown's plan to transfer 46 officers out of his unit, jeopardizing the training regimen that's required by the consent decree? My my experience with uh, Bob Boyk has been very positive. In fact, I'll be joining him for a dinner tonight uh, where he will also be present. Um, but I, I think that's, a, again, totally up to the new superintendent, totally up to the new chief executive, way beyond my purview to be talking about personnel matters and hiring of staff. And before we let you go, it seems this uh, the situation at the police stations with all these migrants sleeping on the floor is not only dangerous for them, dangerous to the officers because of the possibility of communicable diseases, but it's taking them away from, it's making them do the job of not just one other person, but four or five others as they go shopping for wipes and food to experience replace expired food and diapers and baby wipes. What do you think of this situation? What should happen? I, I, I think what uh, Governor Abbott and, and many other uh, many other politicians are, uh, across the South are doing it to people is atrocious. I, I think the way that they're using people as political pawns is atrocious. Um, I'm, I'm very proud that our city is doing its best to help, help those people. I myself plan to go and volunteer and, and help as well. Um, and I just think it's flat out wrong to, to use people as a political pawn. Um, but forgetting just, that, very... what about what we're doing on this end in, in keeping people at police stations? Should that happen? Because, you know, the public can't even get to the front desk to file a report. Yeah, I hear you. And, and it's an issue. But I also think that we have to deal with people in a, in a humane way. And I, I want to be clear, this is not this is another issue that goes much, much further uh, beyond my purview. So I'm speaking as a human being here and not as the president of his commission, but we have to make sure that we deal, we're dealing with people in a humane way. And I think that has to be our North Star. So it, it's going to take sacrifice from everybody. You know, folks didn't ask for this, this problem, but here it is that we're confronted with it. So we have to do our best to treat people in a humane way, um, in, in a way that we want our neighbors or ourselves to be treated. That should be our barometer. Is this humane? I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not going to comment on it. I haven't I haven't I haven't been there, so I'm not going to speak on something I don't know about. 
Anthony Driver, President of the Community Commission on Public Safety. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Best of luck Thank in you. your search, and we'll see what happens. And we will see you all next week. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.